0: But today I'm going to speak about something that uh, I'm kind of a little concerned about. Mainly because uh, in one area I'm going to speak about, I have a little over 30 years of experience. And so it's not that, that doesn't make me an expert, but I have a little more experience in that one. The other one I'm going to speak on, I have zero years of experience. And uh, so my fear is that somewhere when I get to the second one, um, that many of you in this room will not hear what God's Word has to say about this. The other thing is, is I've been asking a lot of parents, a lot of kids, about this whole issue of what does it mean to be a child that obeys and a parent that doesn't provoke your kid to anger. And it was so funny because as I asked parents about it, like parents are a unique bug. I'll just tell you that right now. Mine, we're, you're, you know you are, you know you are. Um, you now tuck in your shirt and wear your shorts up to here if you're a guy, and that's kind of weird. But um, uh, I would look at parents and say, you know, could you kind of help me I'm trying to make sure people really understand just this passage and so I was wondering if you could give me just some insights on Ephesians 6 1 through 4 that might help me as I talk to parents and I swear not one of them didn't first say to me well you are going to cover Ephesians 6 1 through 3 right because my kid will probably be there if you are and I'm kind of like alright all right. that's cool and then I go to kids and I'm like hey uh, today or this next Sunday I'm going to be speaking about uh, parent-kid relationships and and uh, I was just wondering if you could give me some insight. You know, I haven't been in the whole uh, high school, junior high thing for a while. Just some things that maybe parents do that kind of just drive you up the wall. And they're like, oh yeah, I can give you a bunch. (laughs) And my fear is today is that everyone is going to be nudging either their parent or their kid going, oh, did you hear Todd say that? My goodness. You needed to hear that. When my fear is, no, you need to hear what's said today. See, the thing about it is our tendency, just like Adam and Eve, was to point the finger at somebody else. And I'm hoping that today as we dive into Ephesians 6, that you will really say, you know what, this is something I need to do. Because every one of us in here is a kid of some kind. I know you are. You were born. Therefore, you are a kid. So all of us are that. Not all of us are parents. But the thing that I'm going to talk about today is, is I've heard it one time say, it drives me crazy when people are all up in my business. In my business. What does that mean? Well, in the church, let me tell you something. Your business is my business, and my business is your business. And let me explain. What I want you to do is I want you to go with me to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2. I want to show you something that I think is so key before we kind of dive into this whole Ephesians 6 thing. And look at verse 19. Ephesians 2, verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens but you are fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God. Now let me stop. Right now, if you're in this room and you're a believer, I don't care if you're a parent, I don't care if you're a kid, the most important thing about you is not parent or kid. The most important thing about you is a member of the household of God. See, the mistake that we sometimes make is, is we call them my kid. But if your kid is a believer, you know what they really are? They are a member of the household of God. Because see, when you get to heaven... That thing, this, whatever it is that you have right now, will not be your kid anymore. They will uniquely be what they call a co-heir of grace. In 1 Peter, he calls it that when he's talking about wives and husbands. You, when you get to heaven, my wife and I will no longer be husband and wife because there's no longer marriage in heaven. She will be a co-heir of Christ. So as we deal with one another, the important thing for parents and kids to understand is that each other is more importantly the most important thing, a co-heir of Christ, a member of the household of God. Now keep reading with me. This household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, which is very important, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for the Spirit of God. Now listen to me. Why is your business my business and my business your business? Because God is taking and is not only knitting you as a family together, but because we have chosen to follow Jesus Christ, He's knitted us to Him, but then to each other. See, when I mess up, I affect every one of you in this room that call yourself believers in Jesus Christ. When you mess up, you affect me. And not only do you affect me, but more importantly, you affect God. Let me show you. Go to 1 Peter 2. First Peter two, just the first page is over. We're going to stick in Ephesians here in a second, but I just want to show you something. First Peter two. <clears throat> Look at verse four. First Peter 2, verse four. I say that for the men. Have you ever noticed with men you have to say things twice? God did it. Abraham, Abraham! I'm swearing. Look in the Bible. Every time he talked to a guy, he said it twice. Wives now are sitting out there, I know, I'd have to tell him three times. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, look at this, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Go to verse nine. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, Look at this. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You know what God's doing? God is uniquely taking every one of us in this room that call ourselves believers and he's knitting us together into this amazing thing that is transmitting the grace of Jesus Christ to the rest of the world as He knits us together in our families, as He knits us together as this church body and all the other Bible-believing churches in Simi Valley, all this comes together and becomes this amazing transmission of His love and His grace and what He expects from us. See, your family relationship is important to me because when your family relationship flubs up, it messes up the transmission. It's kind of that thing that goes across the TV screen. When my marriage messes up, it affects the transmission of how we're conveying the grace and the goodness of Jesus Christ to the world. And so it affects you. So when I say today, your business is my business and my business is your business, and more importantly, it's God's business, I'm not kidding. Go with me to 1 Corinthians 3. Now this is the one that absolutely rocked me when I was teaching 1 Corinthians 2 at the Bible school. 1 Corinthians 3. He's talking about this temple that God's building again with each and every one of us being this temple. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 16. 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 16. I think I said that three times, so we should all be there. Look, he says this. And if we were in the south, Paul would say it like this, because that you there is not a you, you personal singular. It's like y'all. Okay? So if we we're in the south, we'd say y'all. So I'm just going to say it that way. Don't you know that y'all are God's temple? And that God's Spirit dwells in what? Y'all. In other words, all of us being together, this transmitter of the grace of Jesus Christ is being built together so that the Holy Spirit can live inside of us uniquely and transmit the grace of Jesus Christ. Now, here's the kicker. Look at verse 17. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Now see, this is where this matters. See, if your son or your daughter or your mom or your dad is a fellow heir of Jesus Christ being built together and you start messing with the transmitter, you aren't just ticking off your mom and dad or your kid. See, you're ticking off God. As a kid, I learned something special about my father and and that is that I learned to fear him in a good way. Ah, One way that I specifically remember was, is I I taught my little brother, when people make you mad, you show them your middle finger. Okay, dumb. I understand. The problem was, is that the first person that made him mad the next morning was my mother. Now, my mom, she's about five foot nothing. She's really not five feet tall. She's under five feet tall. And she's the little general. And I know all day long she sat at the bottom of the stairs staring at the front door because I swear there was a hole in it where she stared just waiting for me to come home. And I came through the door and as I opened the door that stare went straight through my chest and into the friend behind me. And, and I walk in and she looked at me and she goes, what did you teach your brother to do? And I was the classic high school student. I went, huh? Right? She goes, did you know what he is now doing when people make him mad and all of a sudden, wow, that was stupid. You know, that little thigh? And then she said these words. all these words. See, my mom, when she would yell at me, she was like, yeah. You know, it was like, I'd kind of laugh. I tried not to, but then she said this. Wait till your dad gets home. See, my dad grew up on a farm. My dad bucked bales. My dad had like super kung fu grip and stuff. You know, I mean, he was this guy that you just didn't mess with. And she said, go up to our room. So I went up to my parents' room and I'm sitting up there in the room. It's was a long room up on the second floor and I could see the, both ends of the street from there. My peripheral vision that day was keen. Pow, I could see everything. And I was waiting for my dad. And I'm doing okay, I'm cool. You know, I'm like, okay, everything's going to be fine. You know, and then I saw his truck come around the corner. And suddenly, it was kind of like that. You know how you feel it in your neck when you're in trouble? And so I'm like, oh man. And he gets closer and he's about ready to pull in the driveway. He opens the front door. The little general at the bottom of the stairs. And My dad was always so cool. My dad was like, "Uh uh-huh. starts walking up the stairs one by one. You know, I mean, blood, your face turned red. When he turned that doorknob, I knew he and I were going to do some business, if you know what I mean. See, the thing is, if I was just telling you that this transmitter thing don't mess it up, you would be like, who cares? I'm just a flesh and blood guy that's hairs falling out and I can't run like I used to and I can't talk like I used to and all those things. But this is God saying, don't mess with my transmission. See, that adds a weight to it. See, because God is like big. He can squash us like a grape. By His grace, He doesn't. But I think sometimes we forget, especially in parent-child relationship, where I'm, whether I'm a father and a mother or a child, that I am, when I'm doing this thing, I am not to ever kill the transmission of Jesus Christ inside of my family and specifically inside of the church. So with that, here's what I want to do. I think there's four things that I just want to to unload and unpackage out of this passage that I think are key to you not killing the transmission of God because I don't want you to experience God unhappy. Now, to be honest with you, I'm going to really hammer verse 4. And so if I step on anybody's toes later, just come hug me and then tell me where I might have done something wrong. But I am going to really focus on parents because it seems that parents, when they come to my office, they come in. It's so funny and they have the kid in front of them, and they kind of have that like, deer in headlights look, and they're like, fix my kid. Parent, the kid comes in, he's like, fix me, fix me, man, fix me. And no one ever bothers the parent doesn't say, I need to be fixed, because something's going wrong. See, so today, I'm going to talk about, don't worry, I'm going to go one through three, so later on, you can talk to your kid about obedience, and you can talk to your kid about honor, but I really want to hammer verse four today. I want to make sure that we as a church really understand that. Look, at, look over with me to Ephesians six, verse one. Paul's writing, and he says this: <coughs> He says, "Children." Now, stop. Children in this case is a, is a Greek word that could mean um, it could mean little kids, but it can also, more specifically, mean just any offspring, any kid. So that means this person can be anywhere from the crib to however old you can get before your parents die. So we're talking a pretty wide range of people, which means most of us probably in here fit this qualification. But then he says, Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, this is the first commandment of the promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Now here's the deal obedience is unique to a certain group of people. Obedience does not apply to those of you that are married or those of you that are uniquely single, 1 Corinthians 7, that have committed yourself to the Lord. The obedience that's called for here is not to those. The obedience that's called to are those that are still under the authority of their mom and dad. And he says to them in in there, He says, children, obey your parents in what? In the Lord. Now, that, that's the kicker here. See, back in the day, there was a thing called Patera petestis. Now, parents right now are going to be like, Oh, God, why wasn't I born right around 0 A.D.? And trust me, listen to this. From the moment a kid was born until the day that a parent died, they had complete authority over that kid to do whatever they wanted. That meant, if they wanted to, they could kick their kid out of the house. Even if their kid's in their 60s, they could kick their kid out of the house huh they could sell them into slavery could you imagine that clean up your room or I'm selling you into slavery I mean I would just be like no way yeah, the kids would be obeying like crazy but the other thing they could even do even up to the point of way into adulthood if a dad ever said boom he could have his child killed this patera Petestas was a very 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 serious thing so when Paul says children obey your parents in the Lord, he's actually assuming that children are going to. Or he, if children don't obey, they're going to get the old like this. What he is saying is this. See, the whole culture that was being wrapped up in this time was this idea that that somehow it was okay for the church to do it because the world was doing it. One of the scariest things for me to uh, to think through for a kid is how easy it is to get caught up in the world. See, just because the world is moving a certain direction does not mean that's the way we go. Just because the world says that a 60-year-old can turn and kill his 40-year-old son does not mean that's the way we're supposed to go. But the obedience of this kid, even in light of the fact that his dad could kill him, being in the Lord meant this. You're not to obey because this guy can take your life. You're to obey just like Jesus said because this one up here, God Himself can put you in heaven or hell. See, when I obey my parent, that in the Lord thing meant actually I'm displaying my love for God by obeying my parent. So in essence, I'm really not obeying my parent. I'm obeying God. So, those of you in here that are still under the authority of your mom and dad, one unique way that you can stop the transmission and tick off God... It's to not obey your parents because, in essence, you are not obeying God. And then he says this. It's so cool. I love it in there. He says, it's like a no-does statement because it's what? It's right. It's right. See, even the outside world can look at this and go, no, that makes sense. Obey your parents. That seems right. And so when they see you actually do it, it's like, whoa. This guy really does believe in this God. Now see, but the opposite is also true. Can you imagine that somebody knows that by not obeying your parents, you're not obeying God, and then that person's looking at you going, "Okay, wait a second. You told me that your God is big, right? Yeah. You told me that your God created stars that are 250 degrees Fahrenheit. You told me that your God created stars that are so many that we can't count them. You told me that your God created the earth in seven days. You told me that your God knit every single person together, caused life on this earth, and he can also take your life and you're just obeying him? That doesn't make sense. And so as the outside world looks at at the obedience of children, the thing that it's right is this. The transmission to the world is so important. By obeying my parents, I'm showing the world that I truly believe in this God that I say I believe in. And there's also this right thing. You know when you like lay down in bed and you've had a day where you just have done things right? How you can just kind of sleep. But then the opposite, you know when you've been an idiot and you're laying in bed and you're staring at the ceiling? and you toss, and you turn, and you don't know what to do. See, the other thing that's cool about this is Paul says, he says later in verse 2 and 3, this is the first commandment with a what? A promise that it may go well with you all your days on earth. See, there's something about doing something right that God says, look, you're going to lay down in bed and you're going to be able to sleep. Even David wrote about that in the Psalms. But then there's a second thing, and it says, honor your father and mother. Now, this includes all of us. Now, all of a sudden, this begins to expand the scope. Honor your father and mother. Now, the interesting thing about this one that I've been trying to think through is how do I, as someone in his mid-30s, begin to think through, how do I honor my mother and my father? And I, to be honest with you, I would love anybody... My email is tnicewonger at and so as I throw this out to you, I'd love thoughts on this. See, in the Bible, go with me to 1 Timothy 5. I want to show you something. 1 Timothy 5. This honor is to hold in esteem and it's what the value we place on a person. So when somebody's still under the authority their mom and dad obeys, they place a value on their parent, which more importantly places a value on God. Now watch this though. Start in verse 3. 1 Timothy 5, verse 3. Honor widows, see that word, honor? Same word. Who are truly widows. Now watch this. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show, demonstrate, show to the rest of the world their godliness, to their own household, and to make uh, some return to their parents, for this is pleasing. It's right in the sight of God. See, the one thing I don't think we've thought enough through, and some of you have been forced to because of your parents getting older, but what Paul is saying is this. There was a time when you were growing up between, let's say, 0 and 20 years where mom and dad took care of you. But there will come a time where this gets reversed, and in the same way they took care of you, guess what? You are going to be required to honor them by taking care of them. See, that's the word we're conveying. Now, think about this, parents. How you took care of your kids here, huh? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Now, as I try to think through my mother and my father, and my mom's only in her mid-50s, the thought has been, I don't want to take off God, therefore, what does Todd need to do to take care of his mother? The unique thing I've been able to do as a pastor is to go to uh, retirement homes. And to look at a retirement home, to be honest with you, it's mainly a storage place until we kind of let them pass off. Now, I understand there are some times where it's required. There's different reasons why. But can you imagine if all of a sudden you had your kid and you're like, you know what? This kid is going to kind of be a nuisance. It's going to get in the way of a job. It's going to get in the way of things. So I think what I'll do is I'll ship it off. See, do you see what I mean? The thing I'm thinking through? it's a very difficult thing and I understand where some of you are at because my parents just went through it with my grandparents. But I think as a church, what we convey to the world and the way we honor, this whole transmitter thing, it is so important that the elderly, both the young and the elderly within our church, are cared for drastically, above and beyond, because of what it says to a world about honor. Now, those are the two things. The first one is this. As a child, if you want to screw up the message of God, The first thing you do is you disobey and the second thing is you dishonor. Now, where I really wanted to get is verse 4. Now watch this. Look at verse 4. Go back with me to Ephesians 6. Fathers. In the NIV, in the uh, New American Standard Update, and also in the uh, ESV, it actually should say, and fathers. And I'll explain that here in a second. Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Now that and should be there for this reason. He's just got done talking about mothers and fathers, and the and connects it into this thought being that these fathers are looked at as the view of mothers and fathers. Both of them are communicated out of that word, meaning when he's talking to them now. But with Patria Patestus, here's the thing. In writing to these dads, he's uniquely coming to them as the one that holds life and death in their hands of their children, and he's going to talk to them in a special and a unique way. See, the other thing that could happen at this time was there was this gigantic temple to Diana, Aphrodite. And in Ephesus, it was two and a half football fields long and a football field wide, a gigantic thing. 150 feet high, 137 columns, 37 of which were inlaid with gold. Business and commerce and all kinds of things took place inside of this gigantic temple. But one thing that took place inside of this was this thing called prostitution. These people would come to prostitutes thinking that somehow by having sex with them that they were going to get closer to God. Dads, whenever they would turn away a healthy child and they would take and put them in the forum, if the dogs, the wild dogs didn't take them away, somebody would come grab this healthy child, take them to the temple, and more than likely this young boy or this young girl would become a prostitute inside of the temple. It was even said by one writer that 15 years later, many men were even sleeping with their sons and daughters. You think it's bad in the United States? And all of a sudden, Paul's coming into this world where guys can kill their kids, can do whatever they want, and he's saying, Dads, don't provoke your children to anger. I know the world is flowing this way and telling you what to do, and you should go ahead and do it, but don't do it, Dad." And listen to me. Right now, the scariest thing that I think is happening inside of the United States is that same flow. Now, I know you're going to think I'm talking about abortion, and I do think it's a terrible thing, but that's not it. See, there's this flow of things that are communicating to us as Americans, and we call it the American Dream. The American Dream says this. You look at your kid, and you're like, Oh, son or daughter, you know I love you. I want you to go to school. I want you to get all A's. Because I want you to go to Yale. Yale's a good school. And then when you get to Yale, son or daughter, I want you to get A's there because then, son or daughter, I would love you to go on to Yale Law School. Why, son or daughter? Because I want you to have that big white house with the pillars. Oh, yes. And you know that cool little white picket fence around it? Oh, yes. I want you to have that. I want you to get that rich wife that lives on the Cape Cod so that I can go out and visit you at strategic times in my life. I want you to have that perfect little dog that sits in your front yard that never barks. That cat that stays out of the way and is just a fixture. I want you to have those two and a half kids. But the problem is is the American dream, biblically, is not the godly dream. See, we've bought into a lie that tells us that somehow if I have a good job, if I have all these things, that somehow then I'm okay, which that's the biggest lie from the pit of hell. Those things do not make me content. Those, in fact, have a tendency at times to stop this message going forward. The whole flow of getting a good job, going to school, da 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 is flowing this way, and suddenly all of you dads are in here going, you know what? No. The flow goes this way. The Bible dictates it, not the world. The world does not tell me what to do with my kid. I go this way. Because see, as a high school pastor, the one thing I've learned is that many students are getting A's in geometry, A's in English, A's in history, A's in sports, A's in band, A's in whatever else, but getting an F in life. And when they stand in front of God one day, God's not going to care if He walks in and says, Yeah, three times C-I-F. God's gonna go, so what? And plus, if that's what they build their life into, you know the grossest thing in the world are men in their fifties that still glory back in the days when they're eighteen. <laughs> they're the ones wearing those nasty coat shorts and shorts and shirts tucked into them. You know what I mean? It's just it's this thing in which helping your son or daughter understand going against the flow and saying there's something bigger. Now, I I talked to a bunch of students, and I just asked them, I said, what things do your parents do that really provoke you to anger? And what I want to do is, I just want to give them to you, uh, if I can find them. Um, And I just want to walk through just just some of these things. And the first one is this. I lied to you. The first one is this, overprotection. Overprotection. Like no other time in, in the world especially in the United States, are we more overprotective? We are the society that before a kid goes out, here's what the mom does. This is the system. First, we put a helmet on their head. We put a mouth guard in them. We put these protective goggles on their eyes. Then after that, we put on elbow pads, knee pads, shin guards, you know, wrist guards. We put a steel-toed boots. Then all of a sudden, after we're done with that, we put on zinc oxide, 1545. And then finally we go, okay, now go have fun. I was reading a secular book. These moms now have a name. They're called helicopter moms. They hover around like traffic and they never leave until the accident's done. I was at a pool and uh, what are those, the water wings, right? And a kid, you know, the mom's like, they're getting ready to go swimming and They're putting all the junk all over them, you know, and and finally put the water wings on and a life jacket and flippers and, I don't know, floatable underwear and everything else, right? And then a mom says this to the kid, which I love. Now listen to it closely, because at first I didn't catch this. She said this, Never go in the water till you've learned to swim. Think about that. That kid was probably going... Our kids need to learn to swim. They need to learn what it means to take risks. I understand healthy risks. We need to be there to parent them through it. But our kids need to learn to take risks. It's important to their moral. It's important to their physical. It's important to their spiritual development, who they are. And the moment that we start to protect them, can you imagine if birds lived like we did? The kid comes out. The mama bird. They're sitting there. What are we going to eat? She comes back finally after working all day, gathering worms. She feeds the family. They sit on the couch. They play whatever video game. Then they sit some more. She says, when are you going to get a job? Why should I get a job? Things are good here, Mom. No, eventually Mom does this. Right? See, kids don't understand. There's a blessing to them leaving. A blessing that you actually get to enjoy your wife without them around. It's an amazing thing, but the sad thing is, is that my parents, after 35 years of marriage, finally they got done with their kids, and that's when they got their divorce. Because in their whole life, they poured their life into their kids, but guess what they forgot? Each other. And my biggest fear even for us in here as we overprotect our kids and get caught up in their lives and we even live our lives through them is that we forget, more importantly, your parent-kid relationship is your husband-wife relationship. Here's another one. Overemphasizing achievement. (laughs) Overemphasizing achievement is the kid that can be pushed so far that finally they crack. And to be honest with you, I've seen a lot of those kids in fact, some of them, I get to meet them finally uh, at these things called hospitals, and it's not fun. See, when we push them, we do want them to do well. The Bible says in Colossians 3, do your work heartily as unto the Lord. I understand that. But if your kid gets a B, if, even if, like, I know some of you are going to freak when I say this, if your kid gets a C, but they're doing their quiet time, and they're loving the Lord, and they're spending more time with Him than their books, shouldn't we be going, amen? Amen. The other thing that I found that's sick about overemphasizing achievement is generally parents push their kids in areas that they never achieved or that they wish they would have achieved. Dads do it a lot with sports. They fantasize to their kids through sports. And, uh, and even moms, I think especially, they fantasize to their daughters in things they didn't get to do because they were a mom. Be careful with that. The other one's this that we ran into. Um, discouragement. Discouragement. Uh, Everybody in the world has weaknesses, and if you don't believe me, then probably you're not married. Um... (laughs) Oftentimes what happens is there's this one glaring weakness that drives mom and dad up the wall, amen? (laughs) And all of a sudden, with that one glaring weakness, what do we do? We go into attack mode. And the one thing that always happens with discouragement is is moms have this amazing ability to do what I call nag. Oh my goodness. Dads more deal with it in the you know backhand kind of a way, you know, just boom. and moms say to me, Yeah, but that's the only way I can get him to do anything. Okay. Why don't you come into my office and I'm gonna run my nails on a chalkboard for a little while? <laughs> You know, I mean, that's just kind of what happens with a kid. And eventually what your kid does is they take their ears and they close them up like this and they just shut you out. Just like husbands do with wives. And eventually that kid doesn't hear you anymore and after they don't hear you anymore, you've now lost them. The other one is guilt trip manipulation, which I love. My grandmother always used to say this. Eat your vegetables. There's probably people in the other part of the world that would love you to just have one of your peas. Ha, <laughs> I'm like, give me an envelope, you know? What's the address? <laughs> oh. By the way, parents, that one doesn't work. A lady was in my office and a girl was sitting across from her, and after the girl said something, she looked at her and she said, You'll regret that when I die. Wow. The other one I hear, I see a lot, is I'll give you money, I'll give you things. And even this one, I'll give you love. See, the nasty thing that starts happening when we start getting into guilt trip manipulation is we start giving love when they're good and withholding love when they're bad. And what that does is begin to present a picture of God that's inaccurate. Failure to sacrifice. So many times, especially parents that got married young and had kids young, they'll remind their kid that uh, they didn't get to do certain things because their kid was born. As if somehow... That it was their kid's fault that he was born. As far as I know, he was not the one that had intercourse. You know, I mean, it's just this thing in which we somehow forget that this was my choice. Now, we'd say, no, I didn't mean to. Yes, you did. Anytime we do that specific thing, you mean to. And a kid can just be absolutely devastated by that. The other one is uh, not allowing the growth process, which, well, uh, what do I mean by that? <clears throat> I was in a McDonald's at, at one of the play places, and uh, this kid is bouncing around, you know, on the balls and, and going up the slide and going down the slide, and, and then he gets up and you know the little swirly slide. Well, this kid's deciding he's going to do it on his feet, and so he's doing the little swirly slide, you know, and he goes down on his feet and he lands, you know, and, and his friends all like, "Woo!" you know, and they're just excited, and, and then his mom looks over, rolls her eyes, and she goes, "Oh, you're being such a kid." He is a kid. Here's your son. You know what I mean? It's like, jeez. At this time in the world, did you know, since I've been in kindergarten, and I don't know when they stopped doing this, I just found this out. You know those little square carpets you used to take naps? Gone. Gone. I was devastated. I didn't sleep for two nights after I heard that. Recess. Since I've been in grade school, which is 25, 30 years ago. Recess is now half of what it used to be. What our culture has slowly begun to do is kill this unique thing called childhood, which is a growth process. It's not asking our kids to grow up too fast. You know what, a 15-year-old, guess how mature they can be? As mature as a 15-year-old. Amazing concept. Huh? Our world has got so caught up in having them grow up and get going And parents oftentimes make choices for them. They do things like this, because I said so. (laughs) We all swore, I'll never do that when I get to be a parent. Yeah, right. Because it's right. We're so fearful of our kids making wrong choices that what do we do? We again go into that overprotective mode and then pretty soon our kids have no clue how to make choices. Many of your kids are the ones I take out and I go, hey, you want to go to Coffee Bean or you want to go to Starbucks? I don't know. McDonald's or Burger King? I don't know. (laughs) Can you think for yourself? I don't know. (laughs) They're the kid that we yell at because we had to wake up in the morning. Every day for the whole school year. You know what? One time, just let that alarm keep going. And they're gonna walk up to you and say, Oh, why didn't you wake me up? Because it's not my job. (laughs) Yeah, but I'm gonna be late for school. Stinks to be you. (laughs) Oh, can you write me a note? Write your own. See how that one works. See, by not allowing the growth process, what we do is eventually we lead to frustration. Because parents have a unique thing when they're young, they start to let them go. And as they let them go, this unique thing called adolescence comes on and what do we do? Wham! Oh my goodness! They think for themselves now. That's not good! Let me just put it to you this way. Kids are going to have to make choices sometime. Let them make choices now Well, it's safe to make choices because college is a nasty place to learn to make choices. It's not as forgiving, if you know what I mean. And the other thing that's unique about this, go with me to Ephesians 4, 26. See, by provoking my child to anger, something starts to happen. Verse 26. Be angry... And do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And then look at this. And give no opportunity to the devil. Did you know that when you provoke your child to anger, what you're doing is this. Hey, son, daughter, come here. What I'd like to do is I'd like you to meet Satan. Boom. Go get angry. Because then what starts to happen is the moment that I get them angry, they withdraw from me and they connect to something. And when they connect to something, more times than not, Ephesians 4 says, they connect to the wrong person, a.k.a. Satan, a.k.a. evil one, a.k.a. the devil, not a good person. See, what happens in this whole thing is they will leave you. You drive them to anger. You will drive them away. Now, that doesn't mean that parenting shouldn't be firm. Please. I I, I firmly believe the spare the rod, spoil the child. There's a lot of fleshy fat tissue on their rear end and I'm not telling you what you have to do but feel free you know I mean it's just this whole thing I understand firmness but Paul looking at these dads says don't provoke your child to anger you do and you're going to put them right in the hands of Satan here's the last thing he says in, verse six, or in chapter 6 verse 4 but that's a strong but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord That bring them up is a phenomenal word. It means to rear tenderly. It means to grab that child and with tenderness begin to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Have you ever saw a dad when he first has a baby? Man, that guy feels like he's the only man that's ever experienced this in his life. And as a pastor, I get to go visit these guys and they are absolutely stupid. It's amazing. They sit there and they're like... Look at their hands. They're so small. Look at their feet. They're so small. Look at their head. There's no hair. Amazing. And then the dad was like the first or second grader. Have you ever seen it? Where that little girl or little guy sitting in his chair and the kid runs up and jumps in dad's lap and just hugs him. Isn't that just like Cool. Or when that junior high or high school girl, when they do it once a year, you know, and they hug dad. <laughs> and then they tell him he looks crazy with his shorts and his socks pulled up, you know. It's just like... <laughs> But there is nothing cool when a dad or a mom sits down and hugs that junior high kid. And there's also nothing more beautiful than when a mom or dad grabs their adult son or daughter and just gives them a hug. I'll never forget one day walking in after my mom got divorced from my dad and my grandpa hugging my mom. Gosh, I walked in and I'm not a crier, but I was bawling like a baby after watching Little House on the Prairie. I was just like, oh! (laughs) Then he adds two words to that. He adds discipline and instruction. He tempers it. He says, look, do it with, with patience and do it with caring tenderness. But the two words that he used there is, he says, but be firm. Be firm yet loving. That's a weird concept. It's this balancing act. Because he says, if you don't do it, you're going to kill the transmission. The last thing he says is of the Lord. And let me just say this, and please, if you're a parent in here, please, this is the one thing, if you don't hear anything else today, please hear this the greatest thing that I've learned about being a high school pastor over the last 12 years is this. Parents do a good job of creating a fear of themselves and their children. But when Paul says in here, of the Lord, he means to create not a fear of them, but a fear of God. See, the greatest, the greatest builder of peer pressure is when I create my kid to fear me and then when they leave home, what they do is, is they learn to fear People. We wonder why peer pressure is so rampant is because we teach them to fear us, then therefore they fear their friends and they never fear, more importantly, who? God. This of the Lord in there, this little prepositional phrase, it, it encapsulates everything and it says, look parent, I know that you are parenting your kid and you're not going to provoke them to anger because you don't want God mad when you kill the signal. You are raising them up in in, in discipline and instruction, but don't you dare become God in their life. I am God and I will share my glory with no one. Our job is to create a proper fear of God in their eyes so that when they leave home, we don't care because they're not fearing us. Now trust me, as a little kid, it was good for me to fear my dad. His hand was very hard on my tail end. However, more importantly, was learning to fear God. The greatest way to kill reception is to teach your kid to fear you and not God. The reception will die like that because the moment they leave home, see, I learned something amazing. When I left home, I was about a thousand miles away from home. And I'm stupid. Like, I'll be honest with you. I'm a very stupid individual. And so sometime around March or April of my first year, I was like, oh my gosh, my mom and dad are a thousand miles away. Sky's the limit. And I just went, bam! Because there was not a proper fear of God. I was afraid of my mom and my dad, but when I realized they were that far away, I went crazy. Now, here's how I want to finish. If you were a kid in this room right now, and you have in any way killed the signal of God's grace to people because you have gotten caught up in not obeying or honoring, the one thing I'm going to ask you to do over the next 30 seconds or a minute is to pray ask for forgiveness and then to find your parent and apologize. But, parents, and you don't do this enough, I believe, and I hope one day that I learn to and I probably won't because I'll be like everybody else. Examine your own heart. There's nothing cooler than a mom or a dad that will walk up to their kid and say, you know what? Mom or dad isn't perfect. And I just want you to know here are three or four things that while I was examining my own heart, I realized that I need to seek forgiveness from you and more importantly from God. So I'm going to give you 30 seconds or a minute. You can have at it. This is your time to examine your own heart and later please, if there's anything you need to go to your parent about or your son or daughter about, don't leave today without dealing with it.